This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of a Dungeon Master's Handbook. I'm Michael, also known as Chicago Wiz. Glad you're here. This episode, I'm going to get you caught up on a couple of my AD&D games, as well as talk a little bit about my one-on-one solo game that I've been conducting with my wife for just about 10 years now. We use OD&D for that game. And then finally, I'm going to wrap it up by talking a little bit about how I make cities and towns, because I had to do that for a couple of my games recently, and I thought I'd share with you my technique of doing that. So let's get started. So in my AD&D online game, uh, this is the one that I have on Roll20 and on Discord, uh, the players have survived their trip overland to the uh, small town of Tanya. Now this is the first overland trip that they've taken in almost a year of playing. Uh, They've been mainly concentrating on an abandoned, ruined castle complex known as Griffin's Keep. And uh, they finally just had enough loot and needed some uh, help and advice, so they went to the major town in the area. Yay, they survived! Um, They met with the nobleman, who's known as the marshal of the area, and uh, they were very pleased that he was pleased with their accomplishments. Uh, He... The nobles of the land aren't normally used to people just taking it on their own initiative to get rid of evil, and so uh, the marshal was uh, appropriately happy, and uh, they're currently discussing how they might approach uh, finishing off the uh, the bad guys and what they want to do next. And we also had to do something that is pretty common in uh, games every now and then. We had a bookkeeping accounting day. They had a lot of treasure they wanted to get rid of. They wanted to sell it. And so uh, we had to go through that. Now, in my games, the uh, I award experience based on the value of the treasure that they actually find, not the value of the treasure when they sell it. Um, that's just the way I do it. Uh, but usually when they sell things, um, I will secretly roll a reaction roll And generally, if it's a bad reaction, then they're only going to get offered 40 to 50 percent of the the, uh, goods. If it's a middling, kind of middle of the road reaction roll, and I'm talking about the uh, basic expert reaction roll where you roll 2d6, the values of 2 through 5 are bad, 6 through... Eight are eh, okay. Nine and above are really good. So if it's a, if it's a two to five, they're not going to get very much for their uh, their loot. If it's a six to eight, eh, they're going to get you know a decent amount. And if it's a nine through twelve, then they're going to get close to ninety to hundred percent. It just kind of depends on where the dice fall and how well they've treated the NPC that they're uh, selling to. So we uh, had ourselves about a good half hour, 40 minutes of accounting where we uh, went through the treasure and they added things up and then they had to do division and yada, yada. You know, that just happens. Um, So it was a good game. Um, In my AD&D play-by-post game, 
the players have managed to make it back to the temple. They are back in the underground catacombs of the temple. They've made it through a particularly tough door, which I made sure to describe how loud and old it was and how it's groaned open. And of course, they're worried about, you know, waking the dead or whatever it is that they're worried about. And they snuck through. Now, I can't exactly talk about what they're going to find um, because uh, my players listen to the podcast, but I've been giving some clues that there's something about this underground area. You know, at first they were kind of catching little whiffs and scents of something burning, like a almost like a molten burnt, burnt metal. You know how metal has that smell if you've ever been near a forge um, and you've smelled molten metal? It, it has that, just that, smell that you don't forget and it's almost like you're tasting pennies um but you're smelling it i know go figure that but um so the you know i've been telling them they've been smelling that they've been smelling a little bit of sulfur which is you know the the smell if you've smelled sulfur you know that smell as well um they cut a little whiff of it here and there but as they venture further into this natural cavern area that is branched off of the uh, temple catacombs they're starting to smell it more and more and then I had a uh, encounter keyed in these catac- in this uh, uh, cavern area, and they ran into it. Now, some DMs would go and say, "Oh, you know, you enter this area, and your light reveals a bunch of giant beetles." You know, and the players would do whatever they were going to do. I didn't reveal it like that. I don't. Even if it's, I mean, if it's orcs and goblins and they've seen these 50 and 100 times, then, you know, I'll do that. Unless there's something unusual about the the orcs and goblins. But if it's a creature they haven't run into before or it's one that they run into infrequently, I will go through the effort of showing, not telling. You know, so I described these as they had lots of legs, you know. It was really hard to see in the flickering light because they were just at the edge of the torchlight. And so they were worried about being spiders. But as they got closer, I was describing that they had hard shells and every so often the the shells on the back would lift and vibrate a little bit if you've ever seen beetles you know how they'll pick up their wings um, beneath their carapaces and they'll kind of you know um, almost vibrate them or flutter them a little bit I think that's a cool visual and so I was trying to describe that and they quickly caught on that they're beetles but I I won't exactly confirm or deny that I keep calling them creatures it's just a little way to reinforce to the players that everything might not be what they seem. You know, okay, you think you're seeing beetles, but are there really beetles? And remember, there's at least two different types of beetles in the AD&D Monsters Manual. So I haven't described if it's one of those or if it's something else that I've come up with. Um, and this helps inject a little bit of caution. Right now, they don't want to mess with the beetles because they're roughly man-sized and there's a whole bunch of them there. And I haven't given them the count either. I just say you see a whole lot of them. They're kind of crawling around on top of each other and around each other. It's really hard to get a count. It injects uncertainty and injects that, oh, you know, it's just six, ten beetles. We can wipe them out. Here it's like, well, he, the DM's not exactly saying they're beetles. He's not describing them as like fire beetles or bombardier beetles or, you know, scarab beetles. So they don't know. And I'm not giving them a count. 
And I'm saying you can't see the other side of the cavern because this is a big cavern and the torchlight's only going part way. A lot of questions in their minds right now. So rather than just go wading in and whack them and gain a few XP, they're choosing to avoid the beetles. They want to move around them and figure out a path. So it's been very interesting to uh, to see their reactions. And I have fun with that because I like injecting kind of that feeling of you don't know what's going on. Is the DM got something evil planned here or is it really just something ordinary? I think that adds to the game, you know, and I enjoy doing it. Also in my play-by-post game, I got to welcome a new player. Um, so this is a shout-out to James, uh, who is playing the character of Jalman. Uh, he's a listener to the podcast, and he asked if he could join, and sure. we got. Apparently, uh, James has not played uh, AD&D for a very long time, and I guess it's been a really long time. Um, so we've been, uh, I and the players, I have some wonderful players that they, they always jump in to help with, with newbies. Um, we've been getting James, uh, kind of used to how AD and D things are done with, uh, character generation. And, uh, uh, James has jumped right in. In fact, he's one of the ones that's really, uh, encouraging the other party members to creep around the Beatles. Of course, it could be that he's, you know, first level and doesn't have a lot of hit points, but you know. He's he's uh, doing a fantastic job, so that that's a wonderful thing. I have described this before in my blog, and, and, and I'll continue to say it again. I like just throwing the players into the game. I don't like making them wait for some sort of a logical point where they can hop in. I don't like doing the thing, you know, of uh, you got to construct some method of including them in. I just throw them in there. Yeah, you know what? You've been here since day one. Play like you've been here since day one. Um, I find that it, at least in in my games, it works out really well because I don't try to make a big deal about it. And my other players who have played for a while are used to this mechanism, so they don't worry about it. They just treat you know new players as if they've been there forever and i find that it really helps to get people involved in moving right away one of the worst things i hate is to make players wait i don't like it when i'm playing and so i figure that uh my players aren't going to like it either so i call it the bamf method for you know bamfing in and out um x-men reference even though i don't really read the x-men anyway i'm babbling let's continue all right, I mentioned my solo game with my wife, uh, Angie. We have had a campaign going for 10 years now, and it has come and gone in spurts, um, much like our life goes. Uh, we, we tend to have a, a very dynamic and interesting uh, life and house. But um, I, I find that with family members, it's a little bit harder to schedule and have regular games than say it is for a group of friends. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because you're just used to doing things with your family and so you kind of get caught up in the day-to-day around the house and suddenly, you know, the two, three weeks, two, three months, or and hate to admit it, two or three years have passed and you're like, oh man, we haven't played D&D in a long time. So um, my wife and I have been uh, doing a campaign. It's a uh, a world setting that I've had in my head for a really, really long time. And 
The funny bit is that a lot of this is based off of a couple of, um, I guess you could call them obscure D&D modules. Um, these were uh, modules that were released in the mid-90s, and they were kind of these really easy to play. Everything was right there in the module. You had the module, you had pre-gens, you could just get up and go. And so I used those to, um, to get Angie to playing Dungeons and Dragons. Um, we played the sample uh, dungeon out of the Holmes Basic, the uh, Tower of Xenopus. And then we hopped into a couple of these, um, I wish I could remember the name of the modules, or they had a name. It wasn't easy play, it was fast play, quick play, something like that. But these were around the mid-90s, right before uh, TSR sold um, to Watsi. Um, the one I can remember is called Eye of the Wyvern. Um, and I use that one as well. Uh, there was one, I think maybe it was called, uh, Tomb of Alaxis or something like that. Anyway, I used these, I created a campaign world around it, and then I kind of expanded the campaign world, much as I do, um, to include a lot of different elements. Um, I, I pulled elements out of a, um, a text mud multi-user dungeon, um, called Akia that he played a long time ago. I pulled elements out of that. I've pulled elements out of Dragon Riders of Pern. I'm even pulling elements out of uh, Tecumel, the uh, Empire of the Petal Throne game, as it was written back in the 70s by uh, Professor Barker. And I kind of threw all these into a blender and came up with this campaign idea. So um, through it all, my, um, my wife's character, Ailey, she is the um, uh, like great 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 granddaughter of a famous wizard, and this wizard had investigated these strange artifacts called dragonstones. Dragonstones are how dragons are summoned into this world. When they're summoned into the world, they need to or they can immediately bond with a human, and they become linked. Much like uh, if you've read the Dragon Riders of Pern, when a dragon is born in a Pern ware and they um, bond with a child who's waiting for the egg to hatch and then it's a lifelong bond and it's telepathic and emotional and read the books, they're, they're fantastic. Well, much the same thing happens here. Well, the colored dragons read... Uh, um, uh, or I'm sorry, the chromatic dragons, colored dragons, uh, red, green, black, white, blue. Those are the evil dragons. And then you've got the metallic dragons, uh, the uh, gold, silver, and uh, brass dragon, copper dragon. Those are the good lawful dragons. They're not from this world. They come from somewhere else, and they're summoned by the dragon stones to this world. Well, the evil uh, mages of a uh, magic school called Umlaran of the city of Maldor have found the secret to the chromatic dragon stones, and so they're running around trying to collect them. And they know that my wife's um, character's ancestors, the wizard, 
knew about these stones and better yet knew where a whole lot of them are hidden. So they're trying to find these stones before my wife's character Ailey can. And so it's just a story about that. And right now, uh, we've managed to get a little momentum going back in the game again. We've we've played about three weeks in a row now. Yay! And uh, my wife's character, Ailey, is about to travel on a ocean adventure and uh, uh, go to the Salzeran Empire. That's a uh, kind of an enemy state from the uh, nation that uh, her character is from. And uh, she's trying to find one of her ancestors' uh, mage towers in this land and find out if there's a dragonstone hidden there. And the interesting thing is, is that I'm going to pull in a lot of elements from Empire of the Petal Throne. Uh, things like how harsh the uh, Empire is, um, how stratified it is with uh, different, uh, you know, um, social classes, um, how rigid it is in the rules and protocols, how swift punishment happens, how everything is about owing other people favors and that sort of thing. So she's going to get involved in a lot more intrigue, I think, uh, in, in the, uh, coming session. So we'll see how it goes. I'm really excited to, uh, to, uh, continue this on with her. So finally, um, that's a little bit of uh, catch up on the games. And finally, I wanted to talk about how I make cities and towns, um, which, as you can guess, uh, both from my wife's uh, game and from the online AD&D game, I've had a couple of towns I needed to create. Now, I've got two different methods uh, for making uh, settlements and habit um, habitations. Um, if it's a village or smaller, on my blog, I had come up with a method called road stops, where if you're, you know, traveling along overland and you want to see if the players can find a place to stop for the evening, there's a couple of quick charts and tables that you can roll against and voila, you've got yourself an instant town, including, uh, what kind of percentage of things are available. So generally, I'll use that if uh, if the players are just traveling. Now, if it's more of a permanent settlement or something that the players are going to keep coming back to, then there's one tool that I've gone to time and again, and that is called the Medieval Domesday Generator. Now, what is Medieval Domesday? Um, you're going to have to forgive the uh, the little dive into history, and I apologize if I... Uh, misremember a couple of things. I, I don't have any notes on it in front of me. But Domesday was a, I believe, a type of census or a, um, a collection of information that was gathered um, during medieval feudal times, medieval times. And it generally gave information on towns and their populations and what kind of businesses were there. A lot of demographic information. And this was collected and, and preserved. And there have been books written about it. And I found the medieval Domesday generator, oh, good Lord, I want to say 
know, probably about 10 years ago. Um, and it's this wonderful little tool that will allow you to change the parameters of what kind of a setting you have, what the geography, what the climate is, and then it'll give you all of this valuable information kind of based off of information from Western Europe during uh, the, the Middle Ages. And so it gives you kind of this natural D&D feeling town with the information there, what kind of businesses are there, what's, you know, the number of them based on the settlement size, um, the population, and so on. And I'll use this generator, I'll generate a quick town, and then I'll kind of play around with the... Um, with those numbers and you know the population size what have you to give me kind of something that right away I've got a lot of information there now I've learned over the past few years that I like my towns to be generated in a certain format and I do that because I want to be able to um, quickly give the players the information that they need I don't want to have to go you know uh, flipping through a bunch of notes and a, a lot of information to figure out, you know, does this town, how many, you know, blacksmiths and armors does this town have and so on. So I use that information from Domesday to give me kind of answer the questions right up front, you know, what is available for the players to buy from, what's available for the players to sell stuff to, what's available in terms of, you know, like taverns and inns, and what's available or what is the form of government there. Now, the Domesday Generator doesn't tell you a lot about that. I've got some other tables that I've collected over the years for, like, you know, gov governments and who's running the city and whatnot. So once I've generated that information and I've kind of answered those first few questions, then I'll go find a map. Now, there's a lot of tools out there that you can use for generating city and town maps. Um, and I'll leave a couple of links in the podcast description. Um, there's one generator. Uh, it's pretty well known that if you, you tweak a couple of values and it'll produce this really kind of cool, realistic looking map based on whether there's a river nearby or, uh, you know, a coastal uh, region. Uh, you can, you know, say what kind of, um, you know, walls are around the city. Is there a citadel there? Is there a temple there? Gives you a lot of great options and it produces a fairly interesting map. Another thing that I'll do is I will go and I'll just start looking for medieval maps of towns and cities. Um, in fact, uh, I, I'm using the old map of the uh, English town of Bath for one of my towns that the players are, are going to get to. And it just kind of provides me that instant, boom, here's a map, fairly realistic looking, and I can start, you know, figuring out what's where and dropping things in without having to go and draw it myself. Um, once I've got that, so I've got the basic demographic information, I've got the basic map, then the last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to answer 20 questions. Now, what are 20 questions? Um, Jeff Reince, who does a fantastic blog called Jeff's Game Blog, he's been doing it for almost, I think, close to 15 years now. 
He's got a post back from about 10 years ago called, There's 20 Questions I Answer for a Campaign That I Start. And it's a great set of questions, you know, and ask you, you know, like, who's the most famous wizard of the land? Who's the most famous warrior of the land? You know, what famous, uh, you know, treasure is nearby? You know, what's the most popular tavern? That kind of thing. But it, it's all geared towards things that players usually want to know and want to do in a town. You know, you could fill out a lot of trivia of the town, but the players usually want to focus on buying stuff, selling stuff, or getting information about getting more stuff. And Jeff's questions definitely help you to, uh, to setting that up. And so I'll answer those questions about this town or this city. And so now I've got all that information, then I'm going to put it into the format that I like. And for me, what I do is, is my very first page of my town write-up is all of that quick, important information. The, you know, typically the players want to buy rations, weapons, armor, and get rid of their gems and jewelry. And so I'll have that information there. I'll also have the information on what two or three taverns, usually, you know, a really good tavern in, a kind of a middling tavern in where generally you would go to hire hirelings and henchmen. And then, you know, the, the hive of scum and villainy where the players are going to go to, you know, get into trouble. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about the government. So that's on kind of like one sheet information at a glance I can get to and, and have that right away. Then on the next page, I'll have the town map. On that following page after the map, then I'll have more detailed info. A lot of the info that I get from the uh, Domesday generator, such as, you know, the population, the government type and specifics about the government, um, you know, maybe more information about the um, about the breakdown of population and the types of businesses. And I'll also start having a key for what businesses and NPCs are where in the town. Then after that, I'll have a little bit about war games related information. If it's going to be an important enough town, I'm probably at some point going to want to know how big the militia is, how many officers there are, and so on, because probably I'm going to get it involved in some sort of warfare. Um, and then finally, after that, I will have the answers to my 20 questions. So that way, you know, if I need to refer to some detail, once I'm kind of all got all this information, then I can start thinking about what types of factions I'm going to have and what types of conflicts and situations I'm going to have in my town. Usually I try to have at least three things going on. Um, an NPC wants something and is actively, you know, seeking something or is in conflict with someone else. Um, you know, some sort of a faction, like maybe a guild or a thieves guild or, you know, a secret evil cult, what have you, um, and then usually something about the town that maybe nobody knows about, but it's something that maybe the players are going to run into. Just something, three things that the players could really, you know, if, if they want to take the time and investigate, they could get into it, or it makes for great rumor bait. Hey, did you hear about, you know, this guy that lives down the road? I think he's an evil mage because I see, you know, purple lights coming from his barn at night and I'm hearing screams of pain, you know, something like that. But you know what I'm getting at here. 
I know that sounds like a lot for a town and city, but if it's something that your players are going to keep on going back to, I take the time to invest in that. I don't do this for every town though. And generally I've gotten to the point where it takes me maybe no more than half hour, an hour to rip right through this and to answer those questions. And trust me, there are plenty of generators and tables out there that if you're totally stuck, you can just go to Google and type in, you know, I need uh, names of taverns and it'll show you, you know, a zillion uh, name generators that you can go to. Uh, Google is your best friend in that case. All right. So we talked about how I make my cities and towns for my campaign, and that really wraps up uh, what I wanted to cover in this podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got something out of it. I did want to let you know that I have a new Three Hexes campaign starter zine that'll be coming out on December 3rd. Um, I really want to thank you for supporting zine number one. Um, I did it as a pay what you want and the suggested price was a buck. I really appreciate those of you that went and bought it, but I'm really thrilled to see that it's gotten a lot of interest and a lot of downloads. Um, I hope you enjoy zine number two. There's going to be four expanded uh, three hex campaign starters there, as well as a little bit more information on how to juice up your own uh, three hex campaign starters and how to really give them some oomph for starting out your campaign. Um, and that's coming out on December 3rd, so look for that. Um, I'll put the link up on my blog and on uh, future podcast episodes. Um, as always, thank you very much for listening. I'm going to uh, end it here. Uh, I always encourage you, please ask questions and leave comments on the uh, Anchor call-in and or um, just send me an email and um, let me know what you think. All right. Thank you. And for those of you that will be celebrating this, I hope you have a th happy Thanksgiving and I hope to see you later. Game on.